Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode four of The Press with Spokane native Will Green. I wanted to have Will on to talk to him about a topic I have very limited knowledge or experience in, and that is sports betting. Gambling is obviously huge among sports fans, and even if you're not putting money down, a lot of people look to Vegas for point spreads, odds, that sort of thing. Just another way to kind of stay informed as a sports fan. Will is a senior director of research at the American Gaming Association. Now, laws in the United States currently prohibit betting in a large majority of the country, Nevada being the prime exception. That could change, and if it does, the American Gaming Association or AGA will likely have something to do with that. As someone, again, who knows very little about this world, it was a very informative conversation. We also got into Daily Fantasy Sports, which blew up a couple years ago and has really quieted down ever since. Will's a good friend. We bonded over Gonzaga basketball, me covering the team, him being a big fan from Spokane. I'm a Philly guy. He went to UPenn, works some time at Sports Illustrated now with the AGA. So great to catch up with him, have him on as well. Hope you enjoy. Episode four of The Press with Will Green. undergrad at Penn, right? Right. Um, you, did you do you did postgrad too, didn't you? Not a Penn. Not a Penn. Oh, but you did. Yeah, at uh, at Northwestern. Okay, that's right. At the journalism school that recently let its accreditation lapse in a wonderful form. I was very proud. What did you get your degrees in? Uh, undergrad, I did a poli sci and uh, English double major, or excuse me, poli sci major, English minor. I should correct that. Um, and at uh, Medill, I did uh, journalism. Hmm. So. And bounced around a little bit and ended up at Sports Illustrated? Yeah, I mean, my dream was to be Darnay Trey. And I <laughs> I obviously, I obviously whiffed pretty hard on that one. And <laughs> I ended up as the janitor at uh, Sports Illustrated, which was really cool. A janitor uh, that got bylines. That's true. That's, that's true. A janitor. A first janitor to ever get a story in the print <laughs> magazine, which still exists. Uh, so you should try to buy it if you can find it. Um, yeah, so I did that. I did that at SI for about three years, and then um, I moved over to the uh, AGA. What I like about this is it seems like you basically just took a hobby, something that you were interested in, and made it a career, which sounds like a logical step, but that's harder. That's hard for people. I mean, that doesn't just happen. Right. No, it takes like eight years, thousands of dollars, and just obscene amounts of luck, basically, <laughs> and a lot of hard work. Uh, yeah, you make a great point. Like, at SI, at first I wasn't even writing really anything. I wanted to get into content like everybody who's 24 there does. And I kind of backdoored my way into that when I was editing and producing, which is what I started doing there. And when I backdoored my way into that, I found out, like, okay, very quickly, if you wanted to write about the traditional sports in the traditional ways, whether they were features or game recaps or whatever, you were going to be faced with not only no money infrastructurally to support you, uh, but also a lot of competition Mm -hmm. from your peers who all wanted to do the same thing. So you can maybe try in a certain way to differentiate yourself. So how do you do that? You find something subject matter-wise that is maybe still germane, obviously, still totally relevant and hopefully interesting to people, but that's a little bit off the beaten path. Um, And for SI, what was definitely off the beaten path and what I found ultimately was a little too off that path uh, after several stories that allowed me to find that out 
was gaming, sports gaming specifically. So started out covering DFS, um, which is fascinating. Daily Fantasy Sports. Daily Fantasy Sports, yes. Um, and I coincidentally started doing that. And by started doing, I mean just like working after hours, not getting paid to do it, mm-hmm. like doing it for fun and getting the free bylines. Um, I started that in early 2015 when I was there. So you got some amount of freedom in terms of just kind of attacking this uh, subject matter that you were interested in, and, and they gave you the platform to do that. A little bit, yeah. It was. It's not like you had, you know, carte blanche sort of. Mm-hmm. You, you had to, there was some nuance to it. You couldn't just do whatever you wanted. But if you played your cards right, you could do some things from time to time. Mm-hmm. And so I started to do that around the start of 2015. And that was a very fortuitous time to be getting into that, which none of us knew until the mm-hmm. fall of 2015, which was like the crazy fall for Daily Fantasy Sports where you saw all the ads on television and suddenly there were lawsuits and you had the data scandal at uh, DraftKings, one of the two large operators. And so at that time, even SI, a publication that's old and traditional in both very good ways and very bad ways, um, even they were like, we don't normally cover this, but this seems like something we need someone to write on. Hmm. So they put myself and um, their sort of legal expert analyst, because I'm absolutely not a lawyer, <laughs> uh, Mike McCann, who's a great guy, and he's a, also a professor at the University of New Hampshire uh, Law School. They put us sort of on it together. And so we wrote a series of stuff, some newsers, some features, in that like October through December time of that year. Um, and it was sort of through that that I got interested. I was always interested in just traditional betting, but I hadn't really written on it. Mm-hmm. And so it was around that time um, that I also started doing some stuff for SI on that, uh, not related to daily fantasy sports. And that kind of you know went from 2015 into 2016. And before I knew it, I was doing a bunch of these panels, like panel circuits <laughs> at various conferences on gaming, which... Um, I guess they were really uh, desperate for, for, for warm bodies. So I got into a fair amount of those, mostly moderating, thankfully asking the questions rather than answering them at various colleges and universities across the country and some others. And it was there that I ran into the American Gaming Association who was on uh, one of their representatives, one of their SVPs, was on another panel uh, later that day, and we were milling around. And that's sort of initially how I got connected to the AGA. That was like halfway a little bit more uh, through 2016. Yeah. That had to be kind of surreal to take something that you just kind of geeked out on on your own and all of a sudden you're part of a panel. <laughs> right. I remember like people like you and other people saying... Like you've got like, a presence. Right. On like joking about, oh, all, more of the gambling tweets are coming up. Great job, Will. Like, <laughs> well, it's true. Your, right. your feed went from... Uh, I mean, our background is right. zagacious. Sure. Uh, our, our background right, was RIP was to Zagacious, right. but you, um, you know, being active on Gonzaga Twitter, so to speak, and then you got the Sports Illustrated gig, and that was just kind of general sports, and then over time, I was just like, Will's tweeting a lot about daily fantasy sports and DraftKings and the industry side of things and all that, and yeah, it was, it was funny, but it was also kind of cool to see, because clearly you would have, you had kind of found your niche. Yeah, uh, I think... It did happen haphazardly. It did happen. It just happened. It wasn't a thing and where... And it doesn't matter how it happens. Right, right. It literally, I mean, it fell into place. And you're totally right. It was something where I had never really talked about sports betting because uh, where we are now, Washington State, 
doesn't really have a big legal presence. In mm. fact, it has absolutely zero <laughs> legal presence anywhere. Um, and like within my family, didn't really have any background in gaming or betting at all. Um, amongst my friends, didn't really talk about it. But I was interested in it from sort of a, a mathematical standpoint almost as it related to the sporting events that I watched. Mm. Um, but not having had any exposure to it until probably like 20, I don't know, 13 or 2012 maybe it was still a very new interest so it wasn't like a lifelong passion and I thought how can I make this my hobby it was sort of something that I was discovering at the time and it accelerated fairly quickly in terms of developing it into something where literally in less than two years you go from sitting at a desk at SI wondering how can I get a byline on this topic that I think is interesting to you know earning a senior directorship position sure so it was wild has it been nice to see kind of the, the, I guess, sports betting coming out from the shadows to some degree? Because it, it was very much in the background, and a lot of people point to Scott Van Pelt with the Bad Beat segment on his sports center, and Brent mm-hmm. Musburger, guys like that, uh, who have kind of brought it into light a little bit and had some fun with it, and um, maybe pulled back the, the cover a bit, because... Um, you know, it had that, again, kind of in the shadows presence. People weren't right. sure about it, very uneasy about it because of the legalities. And, um, you know, they're they're having some, some fun with it. It's not this kind of taboo subject, I guess, the way it had been. Yeah, they, I mean, they, they absolutely helped normalize it. And that, to me, was both coincidental but also really helpful and refreshing because I think you can't really have a discussion about an issue like sports betting if it isn't normalized in the first place. If you're viewing it through a jaundiced lens of past prejudice or outdated stereotypes, then you're not really going to have a conversation about it at all. So between DFS bringing sports gaming writ large into the forefront of the conversation and the Musburgers of the world, you know, doing VEASAN or pre-VEASAN mm-hmm. uh, slipping sports betting references not so discreetly into his <laughs> national broadcast. Sure. Uh, and now and, he's going to make it his livelihood. Right, now he's making it his livelihood, right. Uh, and Van Pelt, obviously, was was huge. And the, the rest of the guys at ESPN Chalk, like Ben Fox and David Purdom, um, Ryan Rodenberg, who are sort of like the literary, I don't know, cousins of Scott Van Pelt mm-hmm. in that vein, mm-hmm. Uh, do a fantastic job uh, with that as well. I think those, the media factor and the business factor um, coalesced at the same time. And whether or not that was purposeful, I don't know. But I do know that it helps normalize the subject. And we are in a very, very different place talking about sports betting now than we were, you know, two, three, four years ago. Yeah. I think it's interesting as... I've I've never I mean it's just it was never part of my experience as a fan I, I don't know why, um, but it wasn't until college and really post college, meeting other guys that were really into it and were active right. in one way shape or form. But for me, it was never really a thing. I enjoyed just from the standpoint of there being lines, whether it's the over under or the spread. Um, you seeing what Vegas projects and seeing how it shakes out and seeing how often it does come down to the wire. It is as right. close. I, I think just it's another, you know, aspect of sports that's that's interesting and another thing to follow. And and from that standpoint, even not ever putting money down on the game, like I think it's kind of that it can be fun to follow in its own way. 
I think it's amazing that the Philly guy had no sports betting background, <laughs> and the guy from Eastern Washington became this like overnight degenerate sensation. We didn't I mean, ever we, go to the track. We didn't yeah. go to AC. It just wasn't. We reversed our geographic stereotypes yeah, at the same yeah. time, right? Uh, no, I mean you're you're totally right. It, it it involves a quantification that, in my opinion, if you're a fan, even if you don't want to put money down on the game, that's fine. Mm-hmm. It's totally fine. Most fans don't, but it adds that element of interest. You can still be engaged with the game in another way, even if you don't put money on it, mm-hmm. by just having a knowledge of, a discussion around, a feeling for said lines, um, and even in-play lines. So these lines that are now extremely popular, these betting options where during a game you can wager on what you think the outcome will be as opposed to wagering on it before the game, or you can wager on while the game is going on uh, any number of proposition bets uh, yeah. based on the performance of certain players. Obviously, this is all this is just taking place in Nevada still. Mm-hmm. Um, but whatever the whatever the um, whatever the nuance of said line, uh, it's it's just another way for fans to engage, yeah. and we see this in our polling all the time. I mean, the leagues are facing the beginning. The very, very, very earliest beginning, I think, of a ratings crisis. Um, for the first time, uh, and as far as I know, I don't, we don't have data that goes back that far, but 1516 to 1617, if you went year over year for those two periods, all four major sports leagues, their ratings are now all plateauing hmm. or declining. And the big shock this last year was the NFL. Yes, the NFL was the most notable of those four in that regard, and the other leagues were actually following suit. There are many factors behind why this is, and people that are smarter than I on that subject have explained them to me, and they'll probably explain them to you <laughs> someday. <laughs> but we all see in our polling all the time how sports betting increases fan engagement, particularly retention of viewing minutes within a game. Hmm. So, you know, us millennials, right? Yes. We're, we're very, we're, we're a fickle bunch. Cell phone in hand. Cell phone in hand, in front of the TV. Uh-huh. Many, many options for our time, yeah. right? Um, are we really going to sit through most three-hour games? Maybe not. Um, but the phone's already in the hand, and the TV's already in front of the phone. Yeah. And if you're doing something on the phone that engages you with the game and keeps you there, shocker, mm-hmm. it increases viewer retention. And the leagues are beginning to wake up to this, um, and it's one of the many factors in sort of a confluence of a multitude of factors, we'll just say, that is allowing them, I think, to reshape very slowly and very almost backdoorly, that's mm-hmm. not a word, circuitously, mm-hmm. uh, their position towards sports betting. Yeah, Adam Silver, NBA commissioner's the guy that's probably warmed up to it more than anybody else, right? He was the first guy, I think, to warm to it more than anybody else. What we saw in that, you're referring to the op-ed that he wrote in, uh, it was a while ago now, Mm -hmm. I I don't remember if it was 2014 or early 2015, but it's it's been a couple years now, and that was the New York Times op-ed, and that made waves, right? Uh, What we found from the NBA was that they were going to be first to the party in that they were going to be the first of the four major leagues to say, we won't get in the way mm. of sports betting. Traditionally, the leagues have all been opposed to it sure. um, through their ability via a federal law called the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act to enjoin states that decide they want to offer sports betting. 
because doing that violates a federal law. And the only bodies that can enforce that law via the courts are either the Department of Justice or, bizarrely, the four major sports leagues. So because of that construct and because of the league's long-standing prejudice against sports betting because they feel it threatens the integrity of their sports, there's always been this dynamic where the leagues have been the natural opponent to betting. And that's why the NBA's, and particularly Silver's rhetoric, and he was new at that time, mm-hmm. remember? that He was yeah. he was freshly in office. Um, that's why that was so important. Because even just saying, we're stepping back, we are no longer an impediment. Not necessarily pushing for it. Right. And they later made that quite clear. Uh, multiple people from the NBA, both to me personally and to many other better known people than myself personally. We're not gonna we're not gonna go lobby like at the state or federal level to change laws or to, you know, push for sports betting. But we get it. We live in a different time. We're not gonna fight this yeah. really anymore. Um, and what was particularly odd about that is that the NBA is listed as a uh, party in the ongoing lawsuit against the state of New Jersey that of course predates Silver's tenure as NBA commissioner. It goes back to 20, well, the the court stuff goes back to 2012, and I think it might even go a little bit earlier than that. Um, But New Jersey passed uh, several referendums uh, over the course of the last, I wanna say, five, six years, by which voters allowed um, sports betting in their state. They voted at one point to uh, repeal um, basically all prohibitions against sports betting. Before that, they did something similar, but it didn't hold up. And uh, basically the case that the leagues have made against the state of New Jersey, uh, it went to uh, uh, the Federal Appeals Court in the Third Circuit. Um, and when the Third Circuit ruled in favor of the leagues, saying, yeah, what New Jersey tried to do um, was unlawful, it violated this federal law, um, they appealed to the Supreme Court, and now the U.S. Solicitor General has been uh, asked to weigh in on this case. And whether or not the Solicitor General says, hey, Supreme Court, um, you should hear this, and he's in the middle of writing a memo, or his office, I should say, is in the middle of drafting a memorandum that could really influence whether or not the Supreme Court takes this case, mm-hmm. um, whether or not he recommends that they should hear it or not hear it will apparently have quite uh, a sway mm-hmm. on whether or not the, the Supreme Court hears it. It's probably a long shot mm-hmm. based on our intelligence. But yeah, if the Supreme Court were to take this case, that would really put a lot of national scrutiny on this federal sports betting ban mm-hmm. that we've gotten ahead of ourselves and not yet fully explained. Uh, how, about yet. <laughs> how, how important is uh, the, the, the support of the various leagues in getting the federal laws changed. It's extreme. Is that something you guys need? Yes, it's something we absolutely need. We have to, basically, at the AGA, I mean, we're obviously, if you haven't told, been able to tell, we're obviously in favor of repealing or amending this federal ban in some way. And just for clarification, the federal ban, uh, this Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, it restricts states from authorizing or sponsoring or licensing Um, new sports betting schemes, in other words, schemes that did not exist at the time that the law was passed. Uh, It was passed in 1992. There wasn't a lot of sports betting going on around the country 
outside of Nevada pre-1992. So what it effectively does, even if it doesn't explicitly say this, is it bans single-game sports betting in every state outside of Nevada. Um, This has had many uh, desolatory consequences, which we can go into later, but... uh, And at the AGA, the American Gaming Association, I mean, we're very much in favor of repealing or amending that law to allow for a legalized framework. And we can get into more of why we are later, it would most likely involve states opting in as opposed to just a straight up wipe the law totally off the books and mm-hmm. create the Wild West. Um, but regardless of, how, how, of however it looks, whether or not it's a repeal or an amendment, it is crucial, to your point, to have the leagues buy in. It's crucial to have everybody's buy in. And I mean, we've been on this effort now for about a year and a half, I'd say, and we probably have at least two or three more years to go. Um, but speaking to your point, I mean, we've tried to get every possible stakeholder aligned. Everybody from the general public and Joe Sports Better to law enforcement groups who don't either don't have or don't want to devote the time and the resources to trying to prosecute mm-hmm. illegal sports betting and mm-hmm. want to see more of illegal sports betting eradicated by virtue of a legal market. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's broadcasters who know that even more people are going to watch their games if there's some sort of ability to have a financial incentive on the game, whether or not it's responsible gaming groups who are, to be totally fair, they're not wringing their hands saying, we want more sports betting, Mm -hmm. but they are freaked the hell out about the current reality where hundreds of billions, literally hundreds of billions of dollars are illegally bet on sports with no consumer protections at all. It's happening regardless. It's happening regardless and people are getting taken advantage of. Whether or not it's the players associations of the leagues who of course want to know how such activity will not only be shielded from but also will affect mm-hmm. financially their players. Mm-hmm. Or whether or not it's the leagues themselves who need to have a better understanding sort of a not only the economic realities of sports betting, but the benefits that it could potentially bring to them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's absolutely vital to have them on board. And I think, again, they're never going to be the people that are beating the drum for it. They're never going to be the people that are actively lobbying for it. Mm -hmm. I think you can go somewhere between where Silver went and lobbying for it. Sure. And if I had to guess, I would say Major League Baseball would even be ahead of the NBA Hmm. based on the meetings that we're having. But I think overall um, you're going to see the leagues be less of, if not not at all, opposed Hmm. to this construct in the future. And that is what buy-in looks like for them. And to have that is vital Mm -hmm. because as one of the two primary enforcers of this federal law especially if you only pull off an amendment of it and the law still exists but it's changed Mm -hmm. you you have to have their buy-in or at least their tacit agreement to not be obstructionist yeah what what does legal betting look like in the united states if it opened up if there would be some like you said kind of state by state regulations uh, but at a very, I guess, kind of uh, basic, simplistic form, how would that take shape, you think? Yeah, so, I mean, it's a great question. Gaming 
in general in this country is a very odd issue. It's a very odd... It's it's designed very haphazardly, basically. Um, there are a few of these federal laws in the sports space, namely the one that we just talked about. Um, but by and large, it's more of a state-by-state state issue. Every state has some laws on the books govern, governing uh, gaming or gambling. So it really, I think, in a lot of people's eyes, starts at the state level. If you amended this main federal law, um, this PASPA, the, the, the federal ban, to allow states to opt in on a one-by-one basis, which I think is more realistic, uh, it would look like that. It would look like a system where suddenly Nevada was not the only state Hmm. where you could have single-game sports wagering. Um, Florida or Colorado or Michigan or Mississippi, Hmm. uh, whoever, New Jersey, uh, could could opt in. Hmm. And then essentially, instead of it being regulated at a federal level by some federal body that would have to be, I guess, created, which honestly seems kind of unlikely, hmm. um, it would be regulated by state gaming agencies, which are already extremely robust in the states that have gaming, hmm. whether or not they're commercial or tribal or both. Um, they have very well-developed infrastructures, and I would be, if this were a video podcast, I would be happy to show you the girth and thickness of the stack of regulations that anyone who wants to operate any sort of gaming has to go through in your average state. Nevada's for sports betting alone, the regs and statutes are you know over an inch thick. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. Hmm. So it would look like a, in, our, in my opinion, it would look like a state-by-state opt-in construct that would happen over time, and it would involve regulation primarily at the state level by existing agencies, as Mm -hmm. opposed to the the feds needing to step in and create some sort of federal regulatory scheme. Mm -hmm. So we're talking in the casinos, obviously. Separate bookmakers? So, I mean, you can do it multiple ways. A lot of casinos contract their books out to just bookmaking shops. Mm -hmm. So like William Hill is a great example of that. They'll run uh, books at various properties. Um, CG Technology is another company that will, like in in Vegas specifically, they'll run books at various name brand hotels and things like that. So you can do that. Or casinos can run and operate their own books Mm -hmm. um, and do it in-house. But yeah, in, in this construct, initially you would see it at brick and mortar properties and you would see it at retail properties, maybe like lottery stores or things of that nature. Um, theoretically, uh, you could see it on your phone. Uh, well, I, that, that was going to be my next question because right. I would imagine that's where the bulk of this would happen. Just like the bulk of anything we do on our regular day-to-day sure. happens on our phones. Uh, my, my assumption would be that say it all of a sudden is all of a sudden is legalized in Washington. Right. It's not all going to go down at the casinos. It's going to go down on our cell phones if if the laws allow for that sort of thing. Right. So there are some other hiccups that could prevent that, or that some people argue could prevent that. Um, again, the only model we have to look at is Nevada. Now in Nevada, there is mobile sports betting. Um, there is not desktop sports betting, but you can do it on your phone. You can do it through a smartphone app that are run by uh, the William Hills and the CGs of the world, uh, but other casino operators as well, uh, the MGMs of the world, uh, the Westgates, the Wins, 
the South Point, where Brent Musburger does his show from, <laughs> um, they all have various apps. Now, the apps are only usable in Nevada. You have mm-hmm. to be within that state because of the way the federal law is set up. Also, it, when you're using that app and you're in the state, technically, except for data that is like pinging off of a server somewhere else for a millisecond in Arizona mm-hmm. or Ohio or mm-hmm. wherever it is, aside from that little aspect of it, you are basically creating data and sending data mm-hmm. and taking money and sending money back and forth within a state. So they'll call that ring-fenced or interstate. Or, no, intra. Intra mm-hmm. is the one that's within, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Intra-state, within the state of Nevada, sports betting. Mm-hmm. That, many people argue, for no little part because it is already happening now and no one's stopping it, uh, they'll argue that that is legal. And they'll argue that that is legal mostly because of a federal law um, called the Wire Act, which prohibits the transmission of wagering-related information uh, or money across state lines. So could something like mobile betting, say Washington was a state to opt in, Mm -hmm. Washington State, for example, uh, if this federal law was amended and it could opt in, uh, would mobile be a part of that? Would mobile betting... You know, be a part of that, and in addition to brick and mortar properties offering it, mm-hmm. it's certainly possible. But I, we're not hanging our hat on that yet. And to anyone out there who's under like thirty-five, it would seem like boneheadedly obvious that it would need to be. <laughs> um, unfortunately, when they wrote the Wire Act in the '60s, uh, which was an emanation from, um, uh, I think it was Bobby Kennedy in the, I, f- I forget what title he had, but he he was big into the, when he was going after the mafia. Mm-hmm this kind of came about because of those efforts, because the mafia was involved in, among other activities, sports betting. Mm-hmm. Um, when they wrote this law, they didn't really conceive of us sitting here 50-plus sure. years later thinking, why can't, you know, we all have cell phones. Like, this is ridiculous. We should be able to bet. So there are some that argue that that law would need to be uh, amended or mm-hmm. repealed for true online sports betting to work and there are others who think no it wouldn't we can just have ring fenced intrastate in every state that would opt in mm-hmm. now whether or not the revenue pools are big enough to pull that off i don't know um, but all of this is to say that even if we were to embark in a construct that was just brick and mortar mm-hmm. right even if we were so forget the the mobile betting or the the laptop betting or the online betting aspect of it um, this is an activity that is existing in either the black or the gray markets in America, um, and no one is really paying attention to it. And it's easy to not pay attention to it because it's very easy to not see. Yeah, it's not a visual activity. Yeah. It's not a. It's not like a crime uh, yeah. or a, a, a physical action. It's yeah. a guy either clicking on his phone or a guy handing somebody else money mm-hmm. or a guy on his laptop using an offshore site, or a girl, guy or girl. Um, And so as a result, it's just very easy to not conceive or not think that there is this vast illegal sports betting market all over the place, Yeah, everywhere. But it'll it'll still be there if the the mobile betting isn't legalized. That is definitely a concern of some people. I think I'm not going to disagree with you. I think that's very key. Um, Nevada was big into 
offering mobile apps. Uh, William Hill was one of the earliest. We mentioned them earlier. In fact, they were the earliest. Um, they bought an app that was uh, being developed by, I think, a, a regional casino named mm. Leroy's. I don't even know if they're still in business. And they bought it, um, and they took it over sometime around like 2010, maybe give or take a year. And I mean, seven years is like a relatively short amount of time, but like everybody has an app now, yeah. almost everybody for sports, and it's it, it's it's paying off. It's like more and more people are signing up for it. It just makes sense, uh-huh. right? It just makes a lot of sense. So, I think we really have to think when you talk about bringing this into a legalized construct, if you want to destroy the illegal market. How do you do that? Well, you do it by making your product accessible and convenient and not taxed too low or too high so that operators continue to operate it so the customers can use it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a real concern. And I think a lot of people are hoping that the Nevada model now, will, with the mobile apps, mm-hmm. will be applicable to other states mm-hmm. that want to come online if they ever are able to. You said betters are putting down about $200 billion a year? Yeah, so our, the AGA's probably more conservative estimates would put the national illegal sports betting handle um, between, we'll say, $150 billion and $200 billion mm-hmm. per year. To put that in perspective, the total U.S. legal sports betting handle is about five billion. Hmm. It's everywhere. I mean, illegal sports betting is everywhere, mm-hmm. and it's not something that people think about. It's not something that people want to think about. Mm-hmm. It's not something that people on either side of the betting argument mm-hmm. um, necessarily want to address. It's something that we want to address, mm-hmm. and we think our industry does too. Um, when you get down to it, because what you're doing there is you're leaving. Um, and we have the economic projections to back this up. Um, you're, you're leaving between 130 and 170 billion annually on the table in terms of sports betting handle, the amount that's just personally bet. Mm-hmm. You're leaving upwards of $5 billion in total tax revenue, each of which would be chopped up and would go to the states, states which, by the way, are increasingly in severe budget crises. Um, you're leaving about 50,000 direct jobs on the table. You're leaving a contribution to gross domestic product that we believe would range in the 12 to $14 billion range. Like, there's a lot of... And th- that's not saying if the entire illegal market was wiped out. Sure. We're just saying that's, you know, with some of the illegal market mm-hmm. coming online to the best... To the best of our ability to guess mm-hmm. of what kind of economic impact that would have, that's what those numbers would reflect. Yeah, and it's not us making these calculations. That that was Oxford. Yeah. So like, you know, there's there's an economic reality out there that I don't think can be ignored. Mm-hmm. Like, it's got like you said earlier, it's going to happen, and it's been just happening for 25 years. And no one's been able to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Preventative policies have not worked. And the people, even the people that are trying to do so responsibly, yet illegally, Mm -hmm. they have no consumer protections in any way. Mm -hmm. They could get bilked at any time. The majority of those people, people our age, 
they're watching an NBA playoff game or an NFL game on Sundays, uh, they're going to some website, and that website is licensed somewhere, almost positively in the Caribbean, <laughs> um, places like Costa Rica, um, Panama, it's very common, and they're depositing money into an account, and it seems kind of okay because they see names like Visa and PayPal mm -hmm. and Bitcoin as deposit options. And so I've seen those brands before. I get it. Yeah. And then you go to the payout options, and they're not as robust mm -hmm. and not as easy. And you realize you don't know anybody that works at this place. And it's very hard to call them or to find even a number to call them mm -hmm. at. And you realize that there are not really consumer protections here that are fair to consumers who have you know, grievances to file or mm -hmm. they might have a balance and then the site gets shut down. Yeah. And, well, where did my money go? Oh, it disappeared. Things like that. I mean, you have no assurances at all. Um, and the reality of the legal market here in the States is that it's regulated enough. I mean, <laughs> regulated enough. It's regulated to within the skin of you know, an inch of its life yeah. uh, to the point where you know, every cent is accounted for four or five times over. And, you know, players have, especially on the app, I mean, there's a digitized record of everything you've ever done. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's much more secure in the mm -hmm. legal and regulated market for obvious reasons. Yeah. Now, there, there are always, I mean, legitimate concerns with this sort of thing, though, right? I mean, people joke about degenerate gamblers, I mean, kind of tongue-in-cheek, but that's a real thing. Uh, there are, you know, there's addictive qualities uh, to that. What what can you say about that? Because there's a lot of people that are maybe rightfully uncomfortable with it or just unsure uh, of gambling and of, of sports betting. Um, and again, there there there's probably some legitimacy to those concerns. What can you say about uh, how putting these constructs in place would also allow people to do it in kind of a, a safe and responsible manner? Right. It's, it's a great, it's a really, really great point. And it depends on the person. I mean, people... You know, you can't control everybody, right? Right. Uh, but you can maybe do it in such a way that, hopefully to some degree, uh, prevents whatever destructive nature might be out there. For sure. Uh, no, I mean, you're totally right. Um, many, many things come to mind. I would say, first of all, you're going to see this become a priority of the industry going forward in a way that you have not seen, not you, Darnay, but in a way that <laughs> the people uh, maybe who pay attention to gaming have not ever seen it before. Mm. Uh, and I can say that because I'm working for the industry's trade group and I, I can assure you that there's going to be much more of an emphasis placed on not only just responsible gaming awareness type of procedures that speak to betters of all stripes, uh, but a more thorough understanding of what works, what responsible gaming even means what kind of standards maybe um, that sports betting operators could adhere to mm. and could all agree upon um, to help promote RG, as we refer to it by its abbreviation. <laughs> um, our prevalence studies show that what we're talking about here is roughly 2% of the population. That's been a pretty long-standing rate of people that we see experience problem gaming tendencies. And it's terrible. It's bad. There's like no way to sugarcoat it. No one likes it. It doesn't help anyone. It's a bad. It's bad. It's mm -hmm. just very bad. Mm -hmm. And 
the reality is setting in for a lot of these operators. By operators, I mean the, the major casinos. Mm -hmm. That you can't just spend away an issue or a problem if you devote another zero at the end of a dollar figure to fighting a problem that doesn't necessarily solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And so the mentality is shifting where we have to get smarter about this. Mm -hmm. And from research, where I, I'm the senior director of research, by the way. I didn't even introduce myself. <laughs> That's probably my fault. Yeah, I'm the, I, I, so I, I'm the senior director there of research at the American Gaming Association. Um, from a research standpoint, this really is sort of contingent upon us. I can assure you that we're working on it as hard as it is to get sort of cogent, accurate data. It's contingent upon us to find out what is the most effective procedure at helping deal with or mitigate people who have these tendencies. Um, I guess not mitigate the people, but mitigate mitigate the, the circumstances that exacerbate sure. whatever they have going on. Mm -hmm. um, and we're working a lot harder on that. I think traditionally you've seen people say, people in the industry in particular say, well, we just need to devote more money to it. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like the, the idea of just throwing money at a wall. Yeah. But half of those times, those people don't even know what the money's being thrown at. But that looks good. It's tangible. You can say you're doing this. Right. And we are, I mean, the industry is spending yeah. a lot more. The industry spends about $300 million annually on RG. So it's our job to help coalesce our industry around a set of ideas that make that spend actually more effective, mm -hmm. actually worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Figure out what works and what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. The one other thing, though, that I would say, I mean, beyond all that, beyond you know, talking about how to get smarter about it and dealing with the 2%, and what does that mean? The other thing I would say is all of the people hemming and hawing about responsible gaming now, when you talk about a future with legal sports betting, you never hear any of those people talk about responsible gaming as it exists right now, today. You never hear any of those people talk about how to address RG within the massive and ignored illegal market. Mm -hmm. And so you can say, well, if you legalize sports betting, what are you going to do about responsible gaming? But we know for a fact that whether or not it's legal or it's illegal, mm -hmm. It's already an issue. Accessibility does not affect prevalence. Mm -hmm. Your prevalence rates are going to be about plus or minus, you know, 2%, plus or minus maybe half a percent, mm -hmm. right? Whether or not it's legal or illegal. So what are people doing right now for that 2%? You don't really hear anybody talking about that. Yeah. There is a massive problem that exists already. And whether or not we legalize sports betting, and by we, I certainly I don't mean us, the AGA alone, I mean, sure. the industry mm -hmm. gets behind it and all the stakeholders rally around and they get that law, that federal law amended or repealed in some way, that 2% is going to stay the same. Mm -hmm. Those people are going to suffer either way. So really, I would say the right question to be asking is, what are we going to do about problem gaming regardless? Yeah. What are we doing right now? Because I'll tell you, if there's going to be a victory on this sports betting issue, it's definitely still a few years away. Mm -hmm. This is not a thing that's happening tomorrow unless the Supreme Court takes New Jersey's case and that sparks a conversation mm -hmm. about the federal law and then the federal law is somehow found unconstitutional via a ruling in that case, which would still be like nine months out. 
unless that happens, we're looking most likely at a congressional path to fixing this. Congress kind of makes a point of doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're pretty slow, pretty ineffective, like at all time historic levels. So we've got a ways to go. Even if we're close to the goal line, mm-hmm. we're not technically close to the goal line. Yeah. So let's talk about RG now. Um, I would love to hear more people come out of the woodwork and lament problem gaming as it exists in this market that everyone either ignores or pretends to ignore. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's it's, it's hard to attack when it, it's just happening kind of in the background. Right. And it's it legally shouldn't be happening. Right. And so it's easier to kind of just, you know, shove to the side and, and not address when it when it's an issue. And obviously if, you know, the, the laws change, then it's good to hear that there is that investment already, that the, the wheels are already turning from, from your standpoint to, um, you know, encourage responsible gaming and uh, to, to help people from going down uh, the path that can be destructive. Right. Uh, quickly, where are we at with daily fantasy sports? Because that was, as you, as you mentioned, that kind of took over and went crazy for a little while and right. allowed people to kind of scratch that itch. And there was the uh, whole luck versus skill argument. And right. now you're not... I mean, I, I was reading up last night. I mean, 2015 seems like a long time ago. And I had almost forgotten how prevalent those ads... I mean, you couldn't escape those ads. Radio, TV, during games, right. they were everywhere. And it's really fallen off since then. So, so where are we at with that? Well, uh, you're seeing a few more states. Obviously, a ton of states in 2016 legalized DFS mm-hmm. um, at the state level. So it went from being this thing that operated in technically a gray area in most every state, mm-hmm. certainly not all, to, okay, now we need to start this Herculean effort on a state lobbying level, state by state, to get laws passed at the state level in as many states as possible, Mm -hmm. which realistically, I don't even know what that would look like realistically. I think I want to say they're up to like 10 or 11 now. Um, We're at an extension of where we were in 2016 with that. Mm -hmm. I mean, state by state lobbying efforts are still going on. I'm sure that they'd love to see DMS legalized in Illinois, a state where the Attorney General had some major concerns about it. I'm sure they'd love to see it uh, legalized in a battleground state like Texas where their AG, Ken Paxton, uh, last year had a lot of questions about it, and not nice ones. So they're still fighting this state-by-state sort of legislative battle, and I think it's going to be very expensive. The two companies are merging, DraftKings and FanDuel. Mm. It says a lot about the industry where you can just say the two companies, and you would, well, what other companies would I mean? Yeah. You know, so the duopoly is now or is in the process of becoming a monopoly. Uh-huh. Um, and you have other operators that are doing interesting things. Some of them are doing them at brick-and-mortar establishments, even. Um, but I don't, I don't know what the long game is for Daily Fantasy um, as it exists now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the debate over whether or not it's betting, I think people are just tired of that debate. I think if you think it's sports betting, you're always going to think that. Mm-hmm. And... I don't blame the people who do. I, I, I think that's an entirely reasonable sure. interpretation. Um, whether or not our legislative efforts on pass the federal ban affect that, I, I don't. I don't necessarily think they will, because yeah. that has to do with single game betting. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of people that think it will 
affect DFS. Yeah. There are many people who would argue that DFS is illegal under PASPA. And PASPA is this law mm-hmm. that traditionally served to ban, you know, wagering as we know in terms of spreads and, and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it, DFS is a complicated mess, <laughs> yeah. to, to be honest. And it's headed towards a future where you might see legislatively their efforts merge a little bit more with the traditional sports betting uh, crowds as well. It seems like it, it's, and I might be totally off with this, but it's kind of the people that are interested in daily fantasy. I mean, it's a kind of a subset of people that are interested in sports betting, but there's way more interest in single game betting and betting against the line, betting against the spread, that sort of thing. And daily fantasy, some people are into that, but maybe uh, not the the push that you have for single game betting. That's my opinion. I don't know. I certainly would rather bet on a single game than play DFS. Uh-huh. And I'm not saying that because of who I work for. I, have... I mean, it's almost like somebody that's into playing basketball as opposed to into, into playing soccer. Like, it's a totally different thing. There's some overlap there, right? but maybe not as... Uh, popular, influential as the issue at hand that we've been talking about. Yeah, I think it's a proxy for some people that can't bet on single game sports. Sure, absolutely. So, so, so there's that there's that aspect to it. I, I would agree with your assessment. I don't know if the general public would. Mm-hmm. Listen, regardless of the format, it's very, very popular. Yeah, sports gaming is extremely popular. A lot of people do it. Millions and millions of people do it, and a lot of them are fans. Mm-hmm. And fans enjoy kicking back and relaxing the game. And I don't think you should be criminalized if you want to put $50 on a game with a friend. That could be the reality that we're headed toward Yeah. if this isn't changed. I don't think you should be criminalized if you want to start a responsible business that pays its taxes and abides by all local laws that allows people in limited form the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it's how a lot of people consume the game now. Sure. It's just a part, whatever, regardless of whatever sport you prefer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was that way with DFS too when DFS came on the scene. But maybe part of that was because it was kind of a proxy for mm-hmm. what we're talking about, you know, with sports betting. So, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah, well, this is really interesting. I mean, I. Like I said, this is just so far outside of my experience, and it wasn't anything that I really ever had a, a great grasp of. So it's you know interesting hearing your perspective and um, just kind of the facts of the matter, how much it's happening behind the scenes already, and how it's happening, and and with so little legal enforcement or regulation, and just the fact that it it does exist, and you know the the pros and cons of of legalizing it and kind of bringing it to light, and you know putting the regulations uh, in place to make sure it's done in a responsible, safe manner where people aren't getting scammed and all that. Um, so, yeah, that's, I mean, it's it's interesting for me because it's just a different aspect of sports, which I love and am passionate about, but wasn't never kind of my wheelhouse, so to speak. Gaming is the parallel universe running beneath what you've covered your entire professional yeah. life. And so, given that, and given the momentum behind several of the issues in the field, it's only going to become more germane to what you are focused on on mm-hmm. a day-to-day basis. And so I hope it's an informative discussion, but also interesting and uh, 
you don't bet on the Sixers. <laughs> I trust the process, man. Okay. I'll bet a cheese stick. I, I'll bet food. Right. Uh, but we'll throw Geno's down on the next Sixers game. Next, next season, though, obviously. Done. Yeah, All right. Thanks, man. Good to see you. Good to see you.